This episode of Film Jive is brought to you by Audible.com, the world's largest selection of premium audiobooks and spoken word content with over 150,000 titles to choose from. To sign up for your free 30-day trial, please visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive. Hello and welcome to the Rock Hudson Super Fan Show. We are recording this episode on August 3rd, 2014. My name is Obsidian. And I'm Andy. <laughs> this is episode number 75, where we are looking at the 1964 comedy film written, directed, starring, and costumed by Rock Hudson, man's favorite sport. Andy, would you please read the plot synopsis? Roger Willoughby is considered to be a leading expert on sports fishing. He's written books on the subject and is loved by his customers in the sporting goods department at Abercrombie and Fitch. There's only one problem, however. He's never been fishing in his life. When a store owner enters him in a fishing contest, mayhem ensues. Now, I should point out that how you said the sporting goods department at Abercrombie and Fitch? Yeah. That's what the store was. It wasn't necessarily... It was a store for adventurers. So this was in the 60s, then? Yeah, for big game hunters and fisher fishermen... Things like that. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't until, I don't know, like, place, like I think 20 years or so when they changed uh, their clientele from uh, active life men to, uh, <laughs> to to whatever it is today. I don't know how you would describe it today. Does Abercrombie and Fitch carry hunting equipment at all anymore? Is that even... Uh, I don't think so. I haven't seen, a, like, an Amber Kirby and Fitch catalog in a long time, but that's where you would get all that stuff from, you know, the catalog. Mm-hmm. And I guess there would have been, like, the main store. Right. But, uh, yeah, it wasn't like that was just the sporting goods department. It was, that's what it was. Now, we should also mention that um, this film is based on a short story written by Pat Frank titled The Girl That Almost Got Away. And originally photographed in 1962 but wasn't released until 1964 and when it was it was not critically well received now why was there the like two-year delay i don't know i have no they don't really say i know that i read some history that said that originally when howard hawks turned in the cut of the film it ran like an hour and 40 minutes and the studio demanded that he cut it down, and so it ended up... But it's longer than that. No, no, this film's not e- This film's not even two hours. It's an hour and 55 minutes. Yeah, but this an hour and 40 minutes. I mean, I'm sorry, 140 minutes. That's okay. what I meant to say. <laughs> I was going to say, well, he got it long, and he made it longer then. No, uh, 140 minutes, and so he ended up cutting 25 minutes out of the film, and for a long time, Howard Hawks said that cutting those 25 minutes ruined the movie. But then later in his life, he kind of professed that he actually quite liked the film. Yeah. So I'm almost positive that I had seen this film before. Mm -hmm. Uh, It had been a long time because the majority of it I didn't remember, apart from some of the more outright comedic moments. Yeah. But I'm curious to know what you thought of Man's Favorite Sport. Uh, Well, one of the things... uh... Well, watching it, that I kept thinking of, and it's probably because it was the last movie that you and I had done together, was uh, The Countess from Hong Kong, mm-hmm. and how a lot of it's really similar with the two unlikely people falling in love, but also kind of like attitudinal, the way that uh, Rock Hudson behaved, although not as brutish as Marlon Brando. He was more um, aloof in a lot of what he was doing, Rock Hudson. But how Paula Prentice's uh, performance, how similar... Her character, I thought, was to the Sophia Loren one. Obviously not as sad, but she was very uh, kind of self-assured. So I, I, I saw very, uh, I was reminded of it that way. But it also made me think of how you have two aged legendary directors both doing a romantic comedy late in their career. And while I thought that Chaplin seemed to have forgotten how to be funny, I thought Howard Hawks was still able to create funny scenes and performances and he never 
none of the scenes ever wore out their welcome. None of the performances, to me at least, felt forced. He didn't seem to lose a step this late in his career like I felt Chaplin had with his other film. Because um, I really enjoyed Man's Favorite Sport. Um, I thought Rock Hudson was great. And one of the things that I really liked about Rock Hudson in the film is that I felt he was very giving to the other performers. Uh, the scene where uh, the police officer is giving him a ticket towards the beginning of the film, I thought that Hudson really gave a lot of that scene to the police officer. I mean, here's a very minor role. It's the only time we see him. And he gets to hold his own against Rock Hudson, be just as funny, have just as many of the funny lines. And uh, I thought that was pretty apparent throughout the entire film. I mean, he, Rock Hudson was a huge star. And I thought he really gave a lot to the other performers where they could shine, especially Paul Apprentice throughout the film. And um, that was one of the things that really struck me about his performance, that he was willing to give up so much to the other ones to let everyone else have a moments, not just him. And I I like that about his performance. I also like that he didn't really mug for the camera. Uh, even during more of the like the slapstick physical scenes, he never really, I, I didn't think, like, facially played it too large. It, it was never, it almost never felt like he's in on the joke. Everything was very natural, and I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I like Rock Hudson quite a bit, too, which is, it makes sense, because this is the Rock Hudson podcast. Um, Hudson Jive. But it brings up something that gets talked about a lot when people talk about man's favorite sport, and it's that, um, for anybody that doesn't know, uh, this was originally intended to sort of act as a sort of tribute, I suppose, slash response film to bringing up baby. And it was going to do that by recasting Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn in the lead, lead roles. Catherine Hepburn declined. So then Paul Apprentice was cast and then Cary Grant dropped out because he felt too uncomfortable with playing an older man being per- pursued by a woman that was as young as Paul Apprentice was. Which is funny because I feel like <laughs> around this time Cary Grant was still doing movies where he was being chased around by like Doris Day and there's Charade with Audrey Hepburn yeah. and she's quite a bit younger than he is. Yeah, but Paul Apprentice was 24 at the time mm-hmm. and uh sorry Cary Grant was like 59 60 so I mean he really was old enough to be your dad yeah and so then Rock Hudson steps in as sort of replacement casting for Cary Grant and all anybody can seem to write about when they talk about this film is how Cary Grant would have been so much better suited for this performance and all Rock Hudson is doing the entire film is imitating Cary Grant which Cary Grant at this point in his career, I don't feel like he was doing very physical roles. He was in he was playing more comedic romantic leads uh because I think around this time the last four movies he makes are The Touch of Mink, Charade, Father Goose, and Walk Don't Run in 1966. So I'm not even convinced that Cary Grant could have sold this level of physical comedy. I mean, obviously they would have ended up using a double anyway, so it would have made little difference. But I think, but what you're saying, I think the fact that it is Rock Hudson underwater, it is Rock Hudson tied to the boat screaming, that he is, at least from my perspective, doing a lot of his own stunts in this film and playing his large frame and physicality up is really important to the character. Yeah, I also think that Cary Grant has, at his age would have just looked ridiculous, not even just the physical stuff, but just in the whole, I guess like he, for the whole story of, you know, Hudson's character being kind of a fraud, um, I don't know, Hudson, I know Hudson, but Cary Grant just would have been too old, he would have had to have played the fraud longer than Hudson would have, I mean, I think there would have yeah, been like... that's a good point too, because at this point, if he's that old playing the fraud, what is he really concerned about with anymore, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it also would have been funny just because there is that whole fishing group with Major. Yeah, he would have been their stage. <laughs> and, and, well, Cary Grant probably was, would have been older than everybody. In yeah, and, and the whole point was that these older men are looking up to rock cuts. So. Yeah. And, you know, like this, like the scene with like the tie caught on the zipper. I just don't think it would have been as funny. No, well, we've and we've already seen that before. I mean, that is a ba- bringing a baby 
gag reused. But it wouldn't have been as funny as, like, with Cary Grant that age. Oh, no. It's, like, 60-year-old man. I mean... Well, it would have been, like, Grandpa gets his yeah, tie yeah. cut in his granddaughter's dress or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, too, I don't think Rock Hudson is doing a Cary Grant impression at all. The entire movie, Rock Hudson is irritable, tired, almost seemingly kind of, I think, bored. And I think he should be. Like, Roger Willoughby is a character that is completely out of his depth. He should be awkward and unwelcoming because there is all this anxiety about trying to pull off this charade in front of everybody. And I and I think there is something to the fact that he's playing a character who has never really had to put his money where his mouth is, and now he has to do it. He's being forced to do it against his will, and I, you know, he's not really up for it. Like to me, that in the entire film, I just got this impression that he's playing a character who's very uncomfortable in his own skin. Like it's about it's a movie yeah. that's about him coming to terms with who he is and accepting who he it. Is. And being true to that. I mean, in a sense, I guess I saw the movie ultimately as like praising the the power the of being an individual. Yeah. And through like uh especially after he kind of realized he had to be in the fishing contest, he did kind of develop a defeatist attitude that really didn't resolve itself until the end. Even when once he won spoiler alert, when he won the fishing contest, he still kind of had a defeatist attitude because it he knew it wasn't right what he had done. I think what you would find in a lot of these movies too is even at the end of the film, Roger and Abigail coming together, it's not exactly the most romantic like <laughs> conclusion to the ending of the film. Uh Howard Hawks tips his hand that this is this is a film this is almost like the un how unrealistic this story actually is in a way with it, that uh kind of very stylish ending. Oh, with the uh, two trains crashing together. And, and, the, and the two silent actors yeah, saying this is the end. Mm-hmm. It almost is parodying everything we've just seen in the film, in a way. Well, I think from the beginning, um, one of the things that I really like about the movie is how at times it can be just absolutely nutty. And one of my favorite mov- movie moments ever, I think, is early on when Rock Hudson decides he's going to tell abigail and easy his secret and he takes him to the piano bar well the piano museum and and there's not even any setup they just (laughs) dissolve into them getting out of a car and just a big sign that reads piano museum and the next thing you know you're in this room of just automated pianos that for some reason rock hudson feels it's necessary to have them all playing simultaneously what i like is that he knew that this the existence of the piano museum that to take them there. Like it's making you aware that you're watching a movie. And then also yeah. that this is not a world that is synonymous with our understanding of reality. Yeah. That they, the characters can just suddenly go to a piano museum if they want to. And then of course you have the bear on the motorbike. Oh, that's one of the best scenes in the movie. Right. And again, it's great because it's so random. Like, it just, yeah. Rock Hudson runs his bike into that bear's ass, and then a moment later, it's riding around on top of the bike. And this girl comes up to him and says, train him how to do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I like how the bear returns. Well, yeah, well, they they actually, like, they kind of pay off that gag later in the movie. Yeah. Uh, but that unpredictability is really unique. I think for this era of comedies, I would even say comedies in general, because it leaves you with this real sense of surprise. And it, when it does those things, it makes it really difficult to anticipate what the next gag is going to be, because every time these things happen, they're just kind of coming out of left field. I mean, it's even how when they go to have a martini, there's that revolving bar and it just keeps moving and the way they play that joke in in a way, and since he gets confused by the revolving bar and he ends up talking to another woman, mm-hmm. and um, it almost seems like everyone else is in on the joke except for Roger Willoughby. Even the the bear, the the female that comes up to him and doesn't just says, "Did you train that bear?" 
everyone else just seems like, okay, this is normal. But I'm I'm sure that's probably true to being a person who has feels like they're always hiding something. You know what I mean? That he probably yeah, that always else, feels that everything's against him. And yeah. he has to work ten yeah. times as hard as anybody else to keep up with keep up his image or whatever. Yeah. But this th- that kind of thing with the the bear and stuff like that, that is I think that is what makes Howard Hawks a little bit unique in terms mm-hmm. of being a comedy director. Like when yeah. I think about films like Monkey Business or Hatari, um, there is this weird element of just pushing things into complete chaos, but not doing it in a way where it becomes like it ever puts characters in like any serious danger. Like it's always just kind of having fun with it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I will say, going back to the accountants from Hong Kong, the other thing that really struck me about looking at that film and this film is that Howard Hawks is also a filmmaker who is very economic in his oh, staging yeah. and how he composes an image. He's known for using that plain American medium long shot to capture most of his action, yeah. which... You know, where he'll let, like, entire scenes play out in one long take, and it's hardly ever interrupted by cuts. And I guess in that sense, he's kind of like um, the director's director, because everything he does is dictated by the staging of his scenes. And I think this works here more so than in A Countess in Hong Kong, because there is this feeling that you are a part of the story. There are a lot of scenes where people are in groups talking with one another, and because he's just kind of got the camera sitting there, there is this sense that you are like a part of that group. Yeah, especially the scenes after you know Willoughby has you know quote unquote won the fishing contest, and you have the major and the other guys at the bar. You the way that he has it blocked, and the way that where he has his camera, it almost is like you're just hanging out with them at the bar. You do almost feel like one of the guys in that scene, and I know that in a lot of Howard Hawks' films, or in most of them, that's kind of like his—I don't want to say that's like his thing, but that's kind of like his most well-known, I guess, theme—is the group of guys working together, being guys, like something like Rio Bravo or um, Hatari or any of the other ones. That's kind of like he gets it down so well, mm-hmm. even like the conversation, like it's. His films, in a in a way, can be very like conversational, but almost realistic dialogue, or at least stylized realistic dialogue. And there's also, but what's interesting about this movie, I think, to some extent, is it almost is reverse engineering that. Mm-hmm. Like there is a sense that Rock Hudson is trying to be like he's he's trying to be in the be like one of the girls well i i kind of know what you mean when you say that at least how i'm perceiving what you said Mm -hmm. as being one of the girls is that he's more of his real self when he's with paula prentice and easy when he's with abigail and easy than he is say with the major and um his boss at abercrombie fitch that he seems to have more i don't want to say in common but he feels more comfortable around them yeah, and and I actually think the female characters in this film are um, more comfortable with being like aggressive and outspoken. Yeah, I mean, I, I was uh, I felt for for the time period this the representation of females, well, mainly Abigail and Easy, they're somewhat modern mm-hmm. in that they are very take control. They're relatively creative. And their ideas, you know, with like coming up with his broken arm story and that they were able to do it themselves. And <laughs> they're very quick on their feet. It's not like they necessarily needed someone to like a male character to push them into the, a certain idea or to do something. They were much more uh, assertive than he was. Yeah. And I mean, that I think there's a lot of that in Howard Hawks's movies to some extent. I mean, when you think about yeah. like the Catherine Hepburn roles or even like Ginger Rogers in monkey business where 
it that initially starts out where Gary Cary Grant is having all of the fun, but then it's like, no, 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 she's gonna get to have just as much fun as he is. I I don't know that I'd call him. He's not like a feminist director, no. but he never alienates them from action. No. No, but I think it's because he likes a certain kind of person mm-hmm. in general, and so. And it, uh, enough, I'm sorry. And and, and that also, I think, he doesn't relegate them to being like the housewife, you know, or always be in support of other characters. Right. Yeah. And I think in this movie, he actually does a really good job in capturing kind of female camaraderie mm-hmm. between oh, Abigail yeah, yeah. and Easy. Also. It was also kind of impressive that. Again, this was made in 62, released in 64. There really is no judgment passed on Abigail when she goes over to Rock Hudson's cabin in her pink night thing, for lack of a better term, Mm. with all intention to sleep with him, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, there's no judgment in the film that's passed on her. No, but I feel like it's, it's more common to see that in movies of this period than you would today. When I think about like Shirley MacLaine in the apartment, mm-hmm. I don't feel like you ever pass judgment on her for sleeping you know, with the bosses. Okay. Yeah. The boss or anything. I actually feel like female role roles have become more limiting in some ways today than they were. Then I understand what you're saying. Yeah. And I agree with it. I think like today, like if a movie like this was made today, there a lot of things would be different. And obviously, we would have had a scene later where Abigail was talking to Easy and was saying almost like how she regretted what happened. Yeah. Whereas I don't necessarily think we got it in this one. No. But I don't think she ever even really apologizes to him about because his, you know, quote-unquote fiancé, who we only kind of just showed up in the film. Um, <laughs> who shows up, and of course one of her scenes is wearing, like, very revealing lingerie for yeah, no. no real reason. <laughs> no reason at all. Um but he, I don't even believe she ever apologized to him for his fiance walking in. She doesn't and... apologize, but isn't that kind of what she's so upset about to some extent? Why she, she runs ups- away? I think she was upset in general because she felt that she ruined his life. Mm-hmm. Because he's revealed who he actually was. He lost his job, lost his fiance and everything. But in the end, I mean, it all worked out. I, I will say Paula Prentice, mm-hmm. I think, gives the best performance in the movie. Oh, she's really great. Um, her voice really works oh in the my film. Gosh. I mean, it's just all over the place. Yeah, I mean, she's so. I don't know. I don't. I don't want to say like she's so believable in the role, but I mean, she is. She she reminds me of Diane Keaton. Actually. Yeah, I almost think like watching it. I'm like, this has to actually be how she is. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything was so natural, and it didn't seem like she was ever like trying. It just seemed like it was. The sleeping pill pill scene that we're kind of talking yeah. about is just that's a great piece of business right there where she's yeah. just like she keeps swinging and striking out and <laughs> just a level of aggressiveness that I don't think you see very often in no you don't female no. characters now the 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 screaming evil character what do you think of that because well I thought he was a relatively interesting yeah huh? um I actually think this movie is all about artificial surfaces yeah i mean Um, he's definitely but what i thought was interesting with his with his character is that he's exploiting his native american heritage just for the white people that come there the white tourists do you think he's really native american no i don't think he is no i I mean mean, in the you actually thought in the movie he is no in the movie i don't think he is in the movie either i almost thought when when they reveal that he's playing this up i almost thought well this is just this is like a this is a costume that he's putting yeah. on. Oh well, I mean the the um, I can't can't remember the boss's name from Abercrombie and Fitch. Catawaller. Catawaller. Yeah, Cata. Well, it's when... Cata. It's not Catawaller. It's like Cata Wall. Wallaller. <laughs> Catawaller. <laughs> yeah, something. Like when that. he plays it up for him, I mean, he's in full. Co- I mean, he's got a wig on. He's got the hat. He's. It's more than just how he is for other people i mean it's like he can tell how far he should exploit it with different people well he's he's like contrasted against rock hudson's character who's doing essentially the same thing yeah but i thought it was interesting in regards to someone like howard hawks who makes a lot of westerns Mm. Mm -hmm. and 
that probably has characters like that in his westerns. Yeah. Yeah. I almost felt it was like he was saying the representation of American Indians throughout the history of westerns is false. And it was, I almost felt it was a statement on that. Because mm. how even says, I mean, Screaming Evil does say that he plays up this persona for white people. It'd be interesting, though, to look. I don't think there are any Native Americans in El Dorado. I don't know about Rio Lobo. But it'd be interesting yeah. to see if in his final two films, if he depicts Native Americans in a similar way. Yeah. I don't know what that would say if he did, because if he's if he's just announcing that this is false representation, but I don't know, is he is he criticizing that or is he just simply saying that's what this is, you know? Yeah, I don't know if he's criticizing it. I don't know if he, over time, he's kind of had a change of heart on how he would have done something in the past or what, you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, but there is a, an artificiality to everything yeah, yeah. The John being John, uh, Screaming Eagle, Roger pretending to be what he's not, even his boss wearing that hairpiece. Yeah, the, the, the toupee. Even the opening credits with that music is expressing something that this film is really the, the opposite of. It's not Roger pursuing Abigail, it's Abigail no, it's pursuing, pursuing Roger. Yeah. Even like the art direction appears fake and it doesn't seem to really be trying to hide the fact that this isn't really out in the woods you know we're shooting oh, this well, on the, the soundstage well the very first scenes where uh rock hudson and paula princess are driving their cars i mean that is an incredibly phony rear projection work to the point where it's almost like calling attention to itself despite all that artificiality that they kind of howard hawks does put in an, an amazing level of attention into in, into fishing like when uh they're at Amber Crumbie and Fitch when they're talking about the different kind of reels and baits, hooks, and everything. There is like a, a real level of detail that he goes into. And I, and, and I don't know if it's because Howard Hawks is an avid outdoorsman that he wants to because he knows these things or what. But uh, yeah, I mean, at this point, even though Rock Hudson is, a, is not a fisherman, he actually knows his... He knows his stuff when he's talking. And I think that's like a common Hawks thing to see people. It's kind of the David Mamet mantra of, you know, people want to watch people who are good at what they do, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And this film kind of does that. And it also kind of does people not being good at what they okay. proclaim to be good at doing. I, actually, I also really like that in this film, when I was watching, I was thinking if they made this film today it would be completely different. All right, break it down for us, Andy. Rock Hudson's Willoughby, he doesn't actually become a good fisherman at the end. He catches, he wins the contest, but it's by purely by accident. I feel a film today like this, he would, he would have won it through actual hard work. You know, he what would we like, have? What do we would have had like a Rocky training montage <laughs> sequence yeah. where yeah. it's like I mean, you he know, the eye of became, the fish or something? Yeah, he actually would have became a good fisherman as in, as opposed in this. Everything just happens through sheer dumb luck. And uh, I really appreciated that. And you know what? That may have came down to the fact that Howard Hawks, again, is a true outdoorsman. And he would probably was of the opinion, you can't become an expert fisherman in the course of like two days. So he has to, he has to win this competition, but he has to do it completely through accident. Yeah, I suppose then that would sort of work against the artificial thing because... I suppose if this was just complete, well, no, I guess not. Cause I actually think it's, it's more talking about how it's how being fake is going to like catch up. To, it's going to fail eventually sort of. Yeah. And I almost wonder if what we were talking about with the, the train crashing edit is almost like we've run out of film or something like, you know, <laughs> like, uh, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm having a hard time articulating it, but, we're going to be aware of whatever we're doing or something. So we're making you aware of the fact that this is a movie because we can't fool you any longer or something like that. Now, what did he think of, uh, so he was an, an inept fisherman, uh, Willoughby, but he also seemed to be pretty inept when it came to just handling women, not necessarily handling, maybe the wrong word, but to just being around women throughout most of the film. I mean, Paula Prentice's character just as much teaches him how to interact with women as it does 
him becoming a fisherman. Yeah. Is this because Rock Hudson's gay? I don't know. I don't, I don't necessarily... Been that, that wouldn't have... Because when he first... When Howard Hawks first devised this film, it wasn't going to have Rock Hudson in it. Well, and they and, and it should be said that at this time, no one knew that Rock Hudson was gay. Howard, and Howard Hawks has said that when they made this film, he had no idea mm-hmm. that Rock Hudson was gay. I would say some people probably know. I would say, like, Elizabeth Taylor knew, because I know they were really close friends. I actually saw a lot of this, actually, as more of a, like, a metaphor for marriage, or a commitment to a relationship, and his, and Rock Hudson's ultimate, his character Willoughby's ultimate fear of a commitment, in a way. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, throughout this film, uh, Abigail is getting Willoughby into all these various things that he can't get out of, the, you know, the the fishing tournament. What else is it? Um, the whole stuff with the car where he gets trapped in her car. The cast. The cast and so forth. I mean, and you can almost say that she's she's trapping him and everything. And even at the end, she traps him. Because, again, she was, she was chasing him more than he was chasing her. So she traps him at the end. Yeah, it's also interesting that his fiance lives in Texas. They're so they're separated by so much distance. Oh, the sleeping bag—he's trapped in the sleeping bag because of her. She's trapping him constantly, and even at the end, if you look at it as someone who say like anti-marriage or anti-commitment, she's trapping him even there as well. So I don't know if again if Howard Hawks wasn't too keen on long relationships, marriage, or what, or that was just something that I noticed throughout the film, mm-hmm. is that he's constantly getting trapped because of her. I also think that maybe his uh, ineptness with women could come from the fact that he's somebody that's been so consumed by his career. Yeah, and then also he's trying so hard to keep his secret, because it's brought up numerous times about him, whether or not he's told his secret. That. <laughs> or a secret that he can't fish. And I, I'm not, I should say, like, I'm not agreeing with any of this gay subtext. Mm-hmm. I think after the fact, it's easy to put something like that on it. Well, if that's how you want to read the film, that's fine. But that is, like, that's not really fairly judging the movie on its own merits. No. That's an exterior idea that invades people's opinions of this film. And then... What has frustrated me is that from everything I read, it seems to dominate the conversation where it's like, well, this movie's more interesting to watch if you view it as a gay man hiding a secret. But the theory completely falls apart at the end. Because he ends up with... Well, he comes Abigail. out as a phony and then he ends mm-hmm. up with Abigail. Yeah. And yeah, he doesn't come out as a phony and ends up with the major. So that that whole reading of the film only works... When it's convenient. Yeah. Well, if you ignore the ending. The way it would have worked is if he came out as a phony and he doesn't end up with any of the women. And if the scene where when he first kisses Paula Prentice and she was like, oh, there's nothing there. And that's the only time they actually kiss. And somehow Rock Hudson ends up looking for Mr. Catawaller. Or he ends up with the bear. Yeah. I should say that bear, I would love... A man's favorite sport spinoff film. With the bear? That bear, like, being a member of the Hells Angels or something like that. Some kind of biker <laughs> gang movie with that bear. I would love it. The bear. No. He would have been riding around on that, like, little red scootery motorbike. Yeah. Mm, but he's a bear. So, I mean, I guess you would take him to Hells Angels, even if that's the, the hog he was riding. And then he, he is a bear. And then he's got, like, a tattoo that just says, like, Da Rock. <laughs> Well, uh, I was reading something kind of, I thought, kind of humorous. Let's let's see if you can uh, explain this one, okay? Mm-hmm. When Cahiers du Cinema requested a statement from, select, from a selection of auteur filmmakers from around the world for inclusion in their magazine, Howard Hawks simply sent a production still <laughs> from Man's Favorite... Wait, simply sent a production still from Man's Favorite Sport of Rock Hudson up to his neck in the lake water with no explanation. What do you think that meant? <laughs> I'm well. If you remember that image, it's almost Rock Hudson looking in disgust 
Yeah. So maybe Howard Hawks was sort of communicating, like, I don't fucking care. No, I don't yeah, have that's anything. That's what he was say. telling uh, Goodar. Yeah, or, you know, that image just maybe perhaps perfectly summarizes what the movie is. But it wasn't just about this film. It was about directing in general. Oh, really? Okay. I thought it was pertaining to... No, it was just Kanye du Cinema. You know, as they wanted statements from all four filmmakers. <laughs> he sends... Around the world, of all of his films, he sends an image from this one. Well, I mean, for Caillou to cinema, that works, though. So, oh, know? yeah. Well, they love this movie, by the way. Like, Godard adores Does this he? movie. And, yeah, this was in their top ten of 1964, somewhere oh. near the top. Well, good for them. Well, I think Accountants from Hong Kong might have been, too. But Well, I'm, well, you know, I'm sure they absolutely went gaga for that film. But I don't know what that says about... I don't know if he's talking about himself, if he's talking about directing, if he's talking, you know, exactly what he's talking about. Now, where does this fall into Howard Hawks' body of work for you? Well, you know, I'm, I think this was the first, like, comedy of his I've seen. Oh, so you haven't seen His Girl Friday, or? No. Um, I, you know, for a long time, the only Howard Hawks film I saw was Rio Bravo. And other than that, I really had no desire to see his other films. For a long time, when I was younger, for a long time, I really stayed away from, you know, quote-unquote classic American cinema. Why was this, Andy? Well, just being a, like, contrarian kind of thing. A lot of it had to do with um, the fact that I hated Gone with the Wind. And I was like, if this is supposed to be so great, then others of other classic American cinema must be terrible as well. And so it's just contrarian kind of thing, and it wasn't until I got older that I was like, mm, probably should see some of these. And, uh... They are quite good. There is a reason why they it's classic American cinema. I just don't like Gone with the Wind. <laughs> I just don't like that I movie. think that's perfectly understandable. So, uh, Howard Hawks, I've seen Sergeant York and The Big Sleep, Rio Bravo, and some of them like that. His comedies, yeah, I've never seen. It falls somewhere in the middle for me, I think. I mean, he has so many canonical works like you were saying Rio Bravo yeah. His Girl Friday Red River um To Have and Have Not The Big Sleep Now one thing I I did want to a question I wanted to ask because there is because of the Abercrombie and Fitch yeah presence in this film there is sort of this uh element to Rock Hudson taking out equipment and testing it yeah and it almost plays as sort of like a cute series of commercials involving mm-hmm. Abercrombie and Fitch products. But none of them work. No, but my question was, is this the best example of how to properly integrate product placement into a movie? You know, in a way, yeah. yeah. Now, I know you like, because um, I've never seen the Jock Tati film, and I know you really like them. Now, I know his film's have like kind of like physical humor is was it physical humor like similar to the stuff that we saw in man's favorite sport no it's not as broad okay because i was wondering if that was an influence or if it was just the goofy cartoons from disney yeah i mean there is well let me think about that most of jock tati's humor comes from this sort of man versus machine machine dynamic well i got that from i first thought that because like i said i'm not real familiar with it but i first but I've seen clips and things. Mm-hmm. And um, I first thought it when he was riding the motorbike. And that's kind of what made me think of it. Yeah. I, I, I think Jacques Tati's comedy is a bit, it's it's a little more specific. And mm-hmm. it doesn't play it as like physically broad yeah. as this film does. But I'm not discounting that maybe Howard Hawks liked Jacques Tati and mm-hmm. was inspired by that. But I, I think a lot of times like, Social class mm-hmm. and architectural designs, like they play a big role in how he, how Jacques Tati, kind of executes his his comedy. Yeah. Now, could you've seen uh, an, an influence from Disney's Goofy shorts? Yeah, yeah, definitely. There well, are actually, a lot of Disney like Goofy camping cartoons where he's you know fumbling around. Well, not even just like camping, but it. There's one where he's like diving, and there's like there's all these like kind of like how-to Disney shorts with Goofy, where he just 
screws everything up or nothing works right for him. Yeah, because, yeah, there was actually a, it's called the How-To series from Goof, starring Goofy. So they w did everything from how, how to ski, how to sleep, how to play football, how to ride a horse, etc. And they still make them. The most recent one was how to hook up a home theater. <laughs> you can see, you can see what people are are most in need of Goofy to show them how to set up now is a is a home theater. In my, I took a history of animation class at OSU. I want to say the Hell Two series is usually considered the best of the Disney shorts. Okay, so jive turkeys for man's favorite sport. I'd give it four out of five. Yeah, I'm going four out of five as well. That's eight out of ten. I mean, it's obviously not like a masterpiece, but it's it's hard not to. I don't want to say like fall under its spell, no. but you know, it's impossible not to enjoy yourself while watching the film. It's just a nice, fun, leisurely experience. Early appearance of leather pants in the film. From who? Paula Princess wears leather pants at one in one scene. Howard Hawks is probably a fan of Kenneth Anger. <laughs> but you know Jim Morrison saw that and was like, Oh yeah. I got I gotta jump on this train. I gotta look like Paula Prentice. I gotta get a pair of those pants. We, we can thank this movie for the doors. Alright, I'll strike half a jive <laughs> turkey then for that. Um will bring us to the listener feedback segment of the show. And we did receive one email that Andy is gonna read. Action Dragon. I wonder if that's his real name, Action Dragon. He's wrote to us before. It was a long time ago. Okay. What did he What did he say in that one? He wrote to us for the Halloween special, and I remember being something about us uh, shitting our pants. Do you remember hmm. that? <laughs> no, I don't. Okay, well, this time around, Action, Dra Action Dragon wrote, After listening to episode 75, where Zach discusses tendency to be more permissive, when rating films that were directed by John Carpenter, I wonder if Andy, and Zach as well, suffers from any similar tendencies to be more lenient when a film when a film is directed by a particular director you like, or the film's subject matter is something that you're already interested in. Okay, well, I've talked before, I'm like that with Woody Allen, where I'm much more permissive. And, uh, like, subject matter, I think, um, in pretty much any exploitation film, I'm going to be more lenient on than, uh, your mainstream films because I understand you know, budgetary concerns and for the most part I also think exploitation films are a lot more interesting than mainstream films if something I think has like an interesting subject matter like he says I'm going to be and you know off the top of my head I can't really think of one but I mean I'm going to be much more permissive on a lot of things than I would Saints Children's a good example yeah yeah Saints Children I understand I understand all the deficiencies in that film but I think the film's interesting. Every time I see it, I'm always like, I wonder what he's, what the director's trying to say, what he's trying to mean. So I'm much more permissive on that one than, say, a mainstream horror film, like Wes Craven's My Soul to Take, which I thought was absolutely horrendous. Because Wes Craven has a lot more to work with, a lot more money to work with, theoretically better actors to work with. He should be able to make something more interesting than a complete middle-of-the-road turkey. So other, I guess, tendencies for me, apart from John Carpenter, uh, the only one I could think of is trauma. Oh, yeah, you're really leaning on trauma. I'm positive there are other directors for me other than just Alan, but he's like my main one. I, I was trying to think of other filmmakers, and that's kind of difficult because I could say like um, Terrence Malick, maybe, mm -hmm. or even Werner Herzog. Yeah. But I kind of feel like, to some degree, all their films are pretty strong. Mm -hmm. You know, with John Carpenter, there's like a certain point in his career where it becomes, am I entertained? And if yeah. so, I'm happy because the technical pro proficiency is going to always be there anyway. Well, I think with uh, like with someone like Woody Allen, and we mentioned it before, I don't know if I'm on the show if we're just talk, speaking just to riffing. each other. But, uh, <laughs> just riffing. But, you know, just bebop and scatting. That um, I think out of every major big name director, I think he's graded the the most harshly than pretty much any of them that that's working today. No matter what movie it is that comes out of his, 
it's always going to be compared to Annie Hall, Manhattan, Crimes and Misdemeanor. I mean, and I just don't think that's fair. I think it's kind of a silly thing to do. I don't think I can't think of any other director that's currently working where the review of a film will go like, oh, yeah, it's pretty good, but I mean, it's can't touch this film. I mean, like Steven Soderbergh, for instance. Like I liked Side Effects, but Side Effects isn't nearly as good as say Out of Sight or The Limey. I don't remember ever re reading a review saying, you know, yeah, that side effects is fine, but man, it's not even in the same realm as Out of Sight or The Limey. I don't understand why every Woody Allen film has to be compared to, like, some of the greatest movies ever made. I mean, I think that's silly. Well, Andy, I, can, I don't do it. Why? Well, <laughs> yeah, I know, but it's, it's a goofy <laughs> thing to do. <laughs> and I, and I, I don't understand it. Hell, even when he was making films of that caliber on a consistent basis not every film was that good no no mm -mm. i mean midsummer's night sex comedy is not on the same level as broadway Annie rose and hannah and her sisters it's just not and that was from that same time period so it's not like this is like a, a new thing uh, i just find it very very odd in terms of subject matter mm -hmm. i love anything relating to nature and survival think we talked about this before yeah the edge mm -hmm. the gray anything where it's the and just one <laughs> kind of like jerry abstract one i do like that one a lot one abstract word like Ooh, i wonder what that means i wonder what gray means or i wonder what jerry means or cliffhanger like i'm not a big cliffhanger fan anything where characters are out in the wild, in the snow. That's why you like this movie, right? Like, yeah, part, yeah, part of it. I guess I didn't really talk about that. I just he is trying to survive. <laughs> you know, isolated from the outside world. You throw that in there, and I'm you've you've got me greased up. Um, I'm pretty forgiving. I guess like on like you could say like Russ Meyer movies. I'm pretty forgiving on that. Oh yeah, you are. But again, I, I I don't think you can necessarily judge every movie by the same criteria. No, you can't. I mean, that's impossible, and I think it's silly. It's possible, and there's no other art form in which you're 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 supposed to do that, where every work has to be have 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 use the exact same guidelines for every work. There's no other there's no other art form that's like that. I think our concepts of what a good movie is is very rigid. I'm not really for certain why it's so rigid, since film as an art you can kind of do anything with it. It's also, though, kind of important to remember that film really isn't that old. No, I agree. It's still relatively young. But, I mean, I would think anyone that has done any kind of studying of film can look at, say, an Ozu film and a Russ Meyer movie and say, well, they can't be judged on the same criteria because they're so different. They're, t they're going for different things completely. They're both making a film, but that's all you could say is the same. That kind of goes back to man's favorite sport and people comparing it to bringing up baby. When you look at bringing up baby, which I know you haven't seen, but when you look at that film, there is a movie that in terms of its pacing, everything about that film, I mean, even the, the story of two people raising a, a leopard, it moves at a breakneck speed. Man's favorite sport is almost the antithesis of moving yeah. at a breakneck speed. Howard Hawks is working in a completely different mode than he was in bringing up baby the pace of man's report sport which we kind of already said was more leisurely mm -hmm. kind of relates itself to the act of fishing which is a much more laid-back leisurely activity i also really love expedition adventure movies okay and movies that depict ancient civilizations oh like indiana jones and the kingdom of the crystal Skull. oh yeah yeah <laughs> Oh, I was thinking of like uh, Mel Gibson's Apocalypto, for example. Oh, oh, you, but yeah, but you love guys that are anti-Semitic as well. <laughs> well, it's a yeah. I mean, it's a huge part of what I look for in a film. If it doesn't have anti-Semitism, I don't like yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, you're just not interested. No. Um, well, it doesn't even have to be like in the film. It just has to be like on the DVD cover somewhere. Or somewhere, something. or like you know, like an actor once said something about it. Right. Or, so yeah. it's like, oh, I know that director is anti-Semitic. Oh, so, okay. You know, everyone's got to have their thing that they're into. I think a common thing that we're seeing today... Yeah. People are very, very permissive with Marvel movies. 
Is this in any way related to the overwhelming praise of Guardians of the Galaxy? It's not even so much the critical overpraising of it. It's on Facebook. I've had friends put up that the movie was so perfect that they cried. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't laugh because I haven't seen Guardians of the I haven't Galaxy. seen it either. It's but... very possible. It's doubtful, but it's very possible that I could cry by being so perfect. Um, the the it, director, it's... the the one of the co-stars of Tromeo and Juliet, I'm sure, has made a perfect... <laughs> Film. He said it was one of the greatest movies he's ever seen, and I responded, "Is it? <laughs> what did I say? Is it better than Knights of Cabria? Is it better than the Bicycle Thieves?" <laughs> and his response was, "Shut the hell up." But I think there are a lot of variables that come into play with superhero movies and mm-hmm. and the Marvel films too. I don't know anything about your friend, but maybe it wouldn't be that ridiculous to assume that he's familiar with guardians of the galaxy beyond i don't think he i don't think he is so he just goes into this blindly and comes out i think he's like i think what he is a lot of people are um they claim that they're comic book fans now i don't know about him personally but i do see this a lot that they claim that they're comic book fans but they're mainly fans of superhero movies people that would never in a million years actually go into a comic book store to buy a comic book but would say that oh I you know I'm, I love comic books. Well, I think even though like geek culture my is student, a, my wife has students that are like that. Yeah, I think even though geek culture is kind of uh, it's the thing now. Yeah, I still think there is this certain perception of of being embarrassed about it for a lot mm-hmm. of people. You know, where mm-hmm. they don't they don't want to, you know, they would never be caught dead in a comic book store because they wouldn't want to be seen in a comic book store almost right, kind of yeah. thing. So being able to love a Marvel movie is a more, I guess, widely accepted form yeah, of culture. Acceptable. Yeah. Which that's fine. Yeah. I mean, I don't really care, but getting back to the, uh, the overpraise of guardians of the galaxy, I do think that we are actually, and I think we really saw this last year getting into the overpraising, the professional critics overpraising a film. As much as I liked Gravity, which I thought was was a great film, Metacritic had hit, what, like a 96 or something? That means no one disliked it. No one had a negative thing to say about it. Uh, 12 Years a Slave was, like, at a 96. American Hustle was, like, at a 96. I think uh, Boyhood right now is, like, at a, at a, at a 100. Yeah. Uh, Kenneth Turan actually wrote an article saying, you know, he didn't, he's like, I didn't review the movie, but I didn't care much for it. And I have started to see that where we have seen some reviews where they're like I didn't write I didn't write a review for it for you know my publication or whatever but I didn't really care for the movie and I've actually read articles that ostracize people for doing that yeah uh because critics use a, a piece to not review a film but still say that they didn't like a film and that that's a poor form of criticism I guess well I'm not I saying that I agree yeah. with that I'm just saying that's I what I why read Kenneth Turan did it because even in his little article he was almost saying i'm writing this in a way for other people that didn't like it to know that they're not alone kind of thing i do think the 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 praise for boyhood i haven't seen it yet um i know i don't think you have either no it does seem a little ridiculous richard linklater is just kind of like hot right now you know yeah I don't think anybody wants to knock him off his pedestal, basically. Well, it's such a gimmick film, and people are so in love with this gimmick, and the some of the detractors that I've read always bring up, I don't know why this gimmick is so impressive when you have the Up series. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm still looking forward to seeing the movie. and I'll see it as well, but I don't... Even having not seen it yet, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to think this is one of the greatest movies ever made. Because of well, that immediate reaction is just stupid anyway. (laughs) Yeah, but mainly because coming of age stories like this aren't usually my cup of tea, and so that doesn't really the storyline really doesn't appeal to me. One other thing that came to me just now regarding this email, which we're gonna bring it back around to that. I love movies. A lot of times you find this in documentaries that exhibit people who have great passion. For whatever they do are interested in. And I'm thinking about like Errol Morris's films. Yeah. 
And I also love movies that capture subcultures that you don't see very often in movies. Yeah. And, and they treat them with a, like a sincere curiosity and respect for them. Like this isn't maybe the greatest example, but I love the wrestler with Mickey Rourke because to me, that's a depiction of people that work in a deli. Yeah. And, and wrestling yeah. in a way that I don't know, seems true to what that the actual lifestyle of, of that is. Uh, yeah. Harmony Corinne is kind of a filmmaker that does that too. Yeah, you're right. <clears throat> I thought of another one that I really like because it kind of it, it's kind of in that realm. Yeah, I love movies, not not documentary. I like documentaries, but not documentaries. I love movies that are incredibly historically accurate. Oh yes, this right. The Wolf and of they Wall go, Street, and they go into insane detail about explaining to the audience what something is, like the whole Quaalude thing. In Wolf of Wall Street, for example. I love things like that. I love historically accurate films. I love history. I love weird history. What's your all-time favorite historically accurate film? Oh, I don't know. Where I just kind of like like get off on how like accurate the portrayal is. Oh, yeah, was. you're just losing it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I've, I've talked about it for my wife recently. It's like that Juicy all... Lucy sandwich yeah, where that's... it's just like oozing accuracy out of those yeah. two patties and uh, I don't, just... yeah off the top of my head I don't know but yeah I love stuff like that and the little details little details that they get into I could I could watch a movie that's about some sort of historical event it doesn't even have to be a major historical event and then there's just some small detail and they spend like 30 minutes on this small detail just explaining what it is <laughs> it's history oh I love that I love that but I can, but I'm like that in just my everyday life, where I'll be reading about something, and something else will be mentioned, and I'm like, oh, what's this? And I just will spend all day reading about phone freaking, which is telephone hacking of the '70s, and that was like months ago. And that's like something I love. I love reading about phone freaking now. I wish someone would make a movie about phone freaking. Well, maybe you should be the one to do it. Yeah. yeah. If I did, it would be like a five-hour movie. <laughs> just go into all these little things. I don't even need story. I just need if I just want a movie telling me things. <laughs> I just can sit back and say, "Movie, tell me information, <laughs> educate me." Yeah, that's all I want. Teach me something new. Yeah, teach me something <laughs> weird. Oh, you want to tell me about the history of cocaine? Do it. I'd be pumped for that. Oh, I'd be but, but let me ask you this, because yes. I feel like there are plenty of movies that do what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. All kinds of like really lame, poorly crafted Netflix documentaries yeah, yeah. do this. Mm -hmm. Is there a level of craft that needs to be involved? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like Blow. I hate that movie, Blow. It's like a terrible movie. And I was so excited about it. And it came out, and I was like, "I'm looks like I'm watching a movie that was made for NBC." I think yeah, I, I think the only thing I liked about it was Paul Rubens. Well, yeah, he's good in the movie. I agree. You know, a movie. Now, this isn't, I, and I know you don't like this movie, and it's not a actual true story, but they do get into those kind of details. Is Pacific Rim? Yeah, but it doesn't pay off any of the details. That's the problem with it. I like Pacific Rim. I love how they get into all those details. I love. I love things like that. But they don't do anything with them. That's the problem. Like that that uh, rabbit chasing thing. It's a great idea, but you don't do anything with it. Well, you don't need to do anything Here's with it. Here's rabbit gotta... chasing. Okay, we're going to abandon that for the rest of the movie. You just have to like give me some sort of like a uh, weird detail where you, you know, this is interesting. Like I love information. That's a big part of it. That's that part that that part of me that I like that in movies is from my love of learning things you do love learning i'm i made a joke the other day that i was going to be i will be a student my entire life i think because i've told you i'm getting a second master's degree yeah i, I love education i guess okay so what are we doing on the next episode on the next episode, we're going to be looking at Todd Haynes' 1995 revisionist horror film, Safe, starring Julianne Moore.
I'm looking forward to that. I've never seen Safe. I'm really looking forward to it. I am as well. I like Todd Haynes, and I have not seen this film either. So you can listen to Andy on the film drive, Stephen. So (laughs) on the Stephen Andy Meet Batman podcast. Yes, you can listen to old episodes, I guess. Check him out on Letterboxd. I can be found there as well. Film Drive can be found at filmdrive.wordpress.com, Facebook, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes. And you can get in touch with us by sending your emails to filmdrive at gmail.com. And I think that's just about it. So thank you for listening to the Film Drive podcast. Please tune in next episode. And until next time, keep on jiving.